from the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida. This is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. How about that Falcon Heavy launch, huh? Well, I promise we'll talk about that SpaceX launch and what that means for Mars, but that's going to have to wait for a later episode. Right now, I want to share a conversation I had with Rick Weatherington. I'm sure you've watched rocket launches on TV or streaming on the internet, right? Think about those tight shots that follow the rocket into space, and in SpaceX's case, the ones that follow them back down to Earth. Well, someone like Rick is responsible for those images. He's a photo planner for Abacus Technology, a contractor at the Kennedy Space Center. He tracks rockets as they take off using this huge camera-mounted rig. He tracks them by hand, usually just a mile away from launch or landing pads. He tracked the Falcon Heavy launch, but I met with him about a week before that assignment. We spoke at the Kennedy Space Center's press site ahead of that launch and what goes into tracking rockets and why his film is so important to engineers. So, Rick, what is your job here? Uh, What do you do um, leading up to a launch and and coming up to a launch day? Probably three weeks or four weeks prior to launch, uh, our our customer will come to us. Right now we're currently uh, supporting SpaceX. So SpaceX comes to my company and they say we need two or three trackers set up around the range to watch the vehicle go down range. Also watch the vehicle come back and land here at the Cape also. Um, so what happens is I sit down and, with the customer and identify the requirements, uh, what kind of camera they want, what kind of telescope lens they want on it, uh, the locations of where they want this. So I put that in a document. It goes to the other people in my crew. They take these the document and they'll determine which camera we want to put behind which lens, uh, how many cameras we want to put on each KTM tracker at whatever location we're at. Currently, um, we have one tracker that's in what they call the FCA. It's a flight caution area. We have to have uh, proper training in that with Scott Air Packs and that type of stuff to make sure um, if there's a, some type of anomaly, we're always ready, prepared to, to deal with that kind of situation. So um, for like a SpaceX launch, we have one tracker UCS-23, uh, which is Universal Camasite-23, which is um, probably uh, five miles from the launch pad, but it's within a mile and a half of the landing pad. So we have that. We have one up at Play Linda Beach, one tracker there, and we also pull a tracker up to uh, Ponce Inlet with a couple telescopes on that to look at a, a different angle of the payload or the rocket as it goes down range. More from like Ponce Inlet, we'll see more of a side view. Here at the Cape, we'll see normally a tail view as it leaves us and goes down range. So. Now explain to me what these trackers are. What do they look like? What's the hardware on them? Uh, back in the uh, early shuttle program, they were more of a uh, like a gun mount that you would have on a Navy ship. And when they started launching rockets back here in the 50s and 60s, they took these gun mounts, they put them on a trailer, and instead of having guns on them, they put cameras on them with telescopes and stuff. Through the years, we've and that was all motorized, um, gear-driven. Um, what we have now is a, it's called a Kinetto tracking mount. It's uh, probably about a 12, 15-foot trailer. It's got a servo-driven mount on it. With that, it's got two platforms on either side that we can mount heavy cameras up to two or 300 pounds on, you know, on either side 
with these long telescopes. Our um, telescopes, we go up to 350-inch uh, lenses, which is, uh, if you know anything about lenses, it's almost like a 9,000-millimeter lens. So. Big. And that's and those go behind either 16 millimeter cameras, 35 millimeter cameras, and, and it, we were using 70 millimeter cameras. Currently, right now for the SpaceX program, we're only using um, HD video, 4K, and 2K, and um, IR cameras and that type of stuff. And how does how does the tracker physically track the rocket through through its launch? Um, we have a couple different types. We have uh, a man in the seat. During launch, we'll be sitting in the tracker, um, looking through a telescope and or an eyepiece, and we have a joystick in front of us that either drives the mount up and down, left or right, um, also starts the cameras. You sit in the, tr- in the tracker, you probably get in there maybe five minutes before launch after it's already set up and configured and ready to go. We get a countdown off the radio, and at T0, we hit the buttons or whatever time our cameras are supposed to come on normally. A minute before launch, we'll turn our cameras on so everything's up and running, up to speed and everything. Um, we will get the countdown at T0. We'll dry, start driving the tracker up, watch the rocket as it goes, and then right now with SpaceX, we're watching it come back to the pads. So you're physically chasing this rocket? You're physically sitting in there. It's like joysticks or something. You're just sitting there driving it. Um, the other type we have are remoted trackers, which we put real close to the pad. And um, we have, back in the LCC, we have some consoles there that we manually track these. The reason why they're remoted is that you're so close to the vehicle in case there's an anomaly or something. And currently we also support along the runway with um, remoted trackers also, mm-hmm. if need be. So what goes into to practicing or training for that? I mean, I assume that it was all done by computers, but you're telling me this is done by hand. Yeah, it's all done by hand. Um, Today is, um, I've been out here 37 years today, so I started with STS-1. So what it is is we have a group of photographers back in the early days of the space program, shuttle and that type of stuff. We were launching quite a few rockets, so it's just training and experience sitting in there and tracking and, and getting a good eye and a feel for how the tracker works and that type of stuff. So, so that's where the experience comes from. I was a photographer in the Marine Corps. I got out of the Marine Corps, came out here and started working again. STS-1 is when I started out here. So that and the experience of just working mm-hmm. all these launches. Um, we also, that's not our only, basically tracking is like our secondary job. During the shuttle program, we'd set up all the high-speed film cameras on the pad, all the documentary still cameras out in the swamps, so you get all the pretty pictures that you get and that type of stuff. So, And then secondary, we'd have a team that set up all the trackers, and then on launch day, all the photographers would go to the tracking sites. They'd track. After the launch went off, they'd shut everything down, turn the film in, and then go to the pad and pull all the cameras off the pad. So... Um, like I said, tracking was sort of secondary at that time. Now, since we're not really using film cameras and we don't have the film cameras on the pad and that type of stuff, we our main focus right now is just tracking. So, what are what are the reasons to track? I mean, aside from providing pictures for NASA TV of of the rocket, uh, you know, during launch, but what are the practical reasons to be taking these photographs and these um, this footage? The reason we they started that was for engineering sequential 
photography, in case there's an anomaly, the customer could go and look at the um, at the footage, whether it's film or video or whatever, and it's got a time correlation on each frame or associated with the video. So the customer can go back and they can look and see exactly when we had an anomaly um, or whenever an issue happened with the engine misfired or payload came off too early or whatever the case may be. So that was really the initial reasoning for coming to the range here with uh, KTM trackers and IFLOT trackers and stuff. So anomalies and uh, so the customer, you know, the customers have a lot of interest in the rocket going down range. They, they're just not there for the pretty pictures. So, that, you know, if they have an issue, um, they want to tie it back to, you know, here's a visual picture of what happened. We see it all the data, you know, coming through the computers. Now let's tie it with the, with the photos or whatever. So, so let's go back to, uh, you said you've been here since STS-1. Walk me through that first mission. What was your job? What, what did you do? Uh, and where were those cameras? My first job, I was, um, we also put up, we set cameras up along the runway. We had trackers along the runway uh, in case there was an anomaly and it had to come back in the land. Uh, I think within 30 minutes of launch, if there was an issue, that could return to KSC and land. So since I was a rookie that time, they put me on the runway. So my job on the runway is to, if the vehicle came back, to, um, we had an abort and they had to re-land here at KSC. My first job was to track the vehicle coming back in. And walk me through um, tracking the shuttle. I mean, and, and you say that you also put all the high-speed cameras. What went into uh, setting up your shots for the shuttle program? Again, talking with the customers, all, all the engineers, as far as the, the pad cameras and stuff, all the engineers would say, if you had an engineer that worked on umbilicals, he'd want to see the umbilicals release at a certain time. If you had an umbilical that worked on the engines, he'd want to see the engines come on. Hold down posts, just all different types of engineers had different requirements. Um, in the beginning of the sh- shuttle program, we started out with probably 150 cameras up and down the structure around the perimeter of the pad. As we progressed through time and they noticed everything was working, they started deleting the requirements, you know. And then if we had an issue, anomaly or something like that, they would ramp back up with items with new engineers wanting to see different types of things. So so that's how the cameras really originated out there and the customers wanting to put their cameras on the pad and why we had so many items. For the tracking part of it, um, back then we only had fixed focal length lenses, so which means we would pick a, a place out in space in time, 10 miles down range, would focus on some collimators or lenses at a certain time, and as the rocket flew through this location in space, it would be in focus, okay? How do you do that? How do you figure that out? It's on a collimator. The customer calls up and says, well, we want to see SRBs come off. Well, they know exactly where the SRBs come off, so we can take that lens and put it on a collimator and focus it to the camera at that distance. Now, um, after the Columbia accident, we went out and purchased new cameras that have uh, active focus on it. So we programmed these lenses to drive focus with the trajectory of the uh, of the rockets going down range. Mm-hmm. So now, instead of it just being focused in a certain time, it's in focus from T zero till it goes and. Now with SpaceX, it's even focused coming back. So, How has technology changed uh, your job? Obviously, we have the different uh, focus uh, modes, but what else has changed as, as technology has developed and time's moved on? Well, cameras, for one. 
when I start out here, we strictly just use film. I mean, we used uh, 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter, even 70 millimeter. And now um, we sort of stepped away from that with the high-speed video and, and, and video products and infrared products, cameras and that type of stuff. So we've sort of transitioned into that, into the more of the digital world, mm-hmm. um, sort of like still photographer, you know. We were all shooting film as still photographers back then. Now we're all shooting digital. So that's how we transitioned to it, you know. Of course, the cameras cost more, and um, they're continually being updated. So by the time we would purchase something and get it in, they'd have a new model out and already updated, just like everything else you do. And you know, whether you're buying your cell phone or whatever, right. you know. So now, what was it like uh, shooting on film? I mean, how long would it take after a launch to to process that? What what went, what um, went into that? In the very beginning, we had our own lab here, so we'd probably process uh, fifty thousand feet of film, and NASA had a requirement that they would review this data the following day. So we'd had a, back then we had a lab over in, on Cape Side that processed all this film and then they'd make the transfers and they'd send it over to NASA the next day and all the engineers would come through and they'd all sit in a room and they'd look at this data frame by frame, basically looking for anomalies in it. Okay. So through the years, each mission you um, if you had the same camera in the same location, these engineers, they would know if there's, a, say, five launches down, we had an issue, something's flying through the frame or something like that, then they can identify what the issue is and, and go to it. Um, so that's how that's worked out. So as far as um, digital world, you know, like I said earlier, we, we're now using infrared cameras and we're using um, documentary still cameras and um, video and that type of stuff. So the transition has been a big transition, but um, we use film all the way through shuttle. Um, we use film on EM-1 or EFT-1. Um, NASA has a requirement that they want to use film on the very next EM-1 uh, for the pad cameras and that type of stuff. And why is that? Why film? Uh, the resolution. Um, they just can't quite match the resolution to it. Plus, we already have all those cameras. Um, if they went out and bought brand new cameras for all the cameras we have, we have 22 film cameras on the on the mobile launcher, approximately. So to go out and buy video, high-speed video cameras to do the same thing and be able to capture all the data and transmit the data and stuff, you just the infrastructure is just so much more. So cost-wise, they decided that we're just going to stick with film for this first launch. And so I, I, I'm. This baffles me because I'm, you know, a, a child of the digital age here. <laughs> but so, so after the EFT one launch and after EM one will launch, you have to physically go onto that tower and pull all that film out of those cameras, right? right? Yeah. Usually, what happens is um, the day I said earlier that usually from our customers, we will know two or three weeks in advance from SpaceX. Um, for NASA customers, like we're working on this. We're already working on this EM-1 launch requirements and stuff, and we've been working on it for the last year because we have to be able to put the camera housings on the pad. we got to make sure we got power and timing, and we can start it from a certain place. And So there's a lot of infrastructure in, in, involved with that. So it, and it takes a lot longer to meet the requirements. So now you're tracking um, SpaceX launches. Eventually you'll be tracking SLS. 
Um, what's what's the future? Um, you think from from your perspective, what, what's ahead for for launch tracking? After the shuttle program, um, there were some questions about if we were even needed or not. Um, um, then they came up and we started launching like Antares up in Wallops Island. So we went up there a couple of years and, and supported up there. Um, there's been other rockets that we were doing. So uh, right now we're not really supported. We're more supported called like the commercial world. So we have to go out and get our customers. Um, we were doing ULA. We're currently not doing ULA, ULA launches, but we are supporting SpaceX in a commercial sense. So going forward, hopefully with all the new programs coming on, you know, there's Blue Origin and all these other programs out there that we will um, we'll be able to, to get their support, and I expect that to come our way, you know, within the next couple of years. So, so. Now, when you... When you first started on STS-1, um, even photographing in, in the Marine Corps, did you ever think your job would include tracking a rocket booster that's coming back to land like SpaceX is doing? Well, not in that sense, no. You know, we, Of course, we've had anomalies through the years, and Delta IIs and Titans and stuff like that, where there's been issues and Pieces and parts have come back to the ground, but we never envisioned, or I never envisioned that we would be seeing rockets coming back. You know, we have been tracking first stage, just one stage coming back and landing, but um, going forward with the SpaceX Heavy, we expect to be tracking two to three segments coming back. So, I mean, Is there added difficulty with something like Falcon Heavy uh, with, with all those boosters flying around? Our biggest, oh, uh, no. Uh, again, we're trained to be inside the flight caution. You know, it, I have myself not been on the tracking side at UCS 23 when it comes back and lands, but it's a quite intense from the videos I've seen and talking with the operators that are on site. Um, again, we're going to be bringing two segments back and landing in the general location of those two. Um, so it's it's going to be very exciting. You know, um, we're all looking forward to it. So. And there are physical people in those trackers, right? Yes, sir, there is people in those trackers. So how far are they from LZ-1? Uh, that, we're approximately, we're right under a mile. Oh, wow. That's close. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty close. So, I mean, if you want to get into this, this kind of line of work, um, I mean, how does one get into this job? This job seems really awesome, and, but really exclusive. I, I feel like there's not that many people that do this kind of work. Well, we currently do not have that many people. We uh, we're down to nine people in our group because after the launch, after the shuttle program, we've laid off a lot of people like every other business around here. So um, what we have now is we, we have people in different capacities. We've got photographers and we've got engineering techs and we have people that work over in uh, our digital lab that process imagery and, and that type of stuff. So on launch day, we bring all these people back together so we sort of cross-utilize them in their jobs that they that they do daily into the launch mode on launch day or day before launch day. So um, so as far as getting that, I would say you probably just need to go out and learn some photo and learn video and um, take a chance and try and get on with us. You know, we're, Of course, we're transitioning to a new contract here at the end of the month or end of February, so hopefully there's chances we can get some more folks out here. As requirements come on board, we get closer to SLS, I expect a lot more people to 
come on board. So You've been doing this for almost four decades now. Is there a particular launch or, or mission that sticks out as, as one of your favorites or, or that was particularly interesting to you as, as a tracker or a photographer? Well, we um, of course, we've had a couple anomalies, and that's not always a good thing, especially when you lose life. Um, those tend to stick out a little bit more. Um, we did have a Delta II that blew up on, off the pad back in 1998 approximately. Um, it was about 18 seconds in the flight. I was within a mile of that pad when it happened. Um, so it was very uh, intense and exciting. So, What's that like? Explain that. Well, you know, our reaction, what we're supposed to do if there's anomaly, we're supposed to just grab the biggest piece and track it down go back up and grab another piece and track it back down until all the pieces are on the ground that way they can either track the crew module or the satellite or whatever they want to see as it comes back to earth so this is all hand done do you ever see that that um you know computers or technology are going to replace the launch tracker like you will that will that be something in the near future or long-term future um with the trajectories yeah there could be some of that but you can't really program a computer for anomaly. Like I said earlier, we go back up and track another piece and come down. You can't be auto-tracking on something like that. Auto-track, if you set it up for a trajectory and it goes down range, more than likely after anomaly it's going to continue to track. So you'd be looking out in the space where a person in the seat would be able to sit there and pick up pieces and look at things that computer-driven cannot see. So um, I, there's probably a need for both. But I would say we've always wanted the man in the seat from our standpoint. And I think a lot of our customers want that too. But, you know, with with going into the future, you know, everybody has different ideas and we're continuing to fight to keep man in the seat. So, Well, Rick, thanks so much for uh, spending time with me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Rick sent me some pictures of the tracking rigs and a video of that Delta explosion he was talking about. You should shoot on over to WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet to check it out. Well, that's going to do it for this episode, but join the conversation online. We've got a Facebook page. Search for Are We There Yet podcast, or you can take to Twitter. The show is AWTY Mars. Are We There Yet Mars? Get it? And I'm at Space Brendan. Support for Are We There Yet comes from the listeners of WMFE. You can show your support by going to WMFE.org slash support. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. You can find more space news online at WMFE.org slash space. Until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.